0: Hello, and welcome to the Sound on Sound podcast about electronic music and all things synth. I'm Kara C., and in this episode, we're talking to Electric Indigo, a DJ, composer, and musician based in Vienna who has performed in 45 countries across Europe, Asia, and the Americas. Electric Indigo, a.k.a. Suzanne Kirchmeyer, represents an intelligent and distinguished interpretation of techno and electronic music. A key figure in the ecology of international techno DJs, Electric Indigo has been rocking dance floors since 1989, as well as working at Hardwax Record Shop in Berlin. In 1998, she founded the Transnational Female Pressure Network, which is how I met her around the year 2000. For a taste of Electric Indigo's music to get started, here's Ferrum Seven from her album Ferrum, which was released on the highly esteemed Editions Megal label in 2020. Electric Indigo, very excited to have you on the Sound on Sound podcast today. Thank you so much,
1: Caro. I'm super happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Cool.
0: Well, yeah, we've known each other for quite a few years via our work, um, mainly through the Female Pressure Network, which we'll talk about in due course. But I think we're going to have to start with the timeline, which actually, I don't think you've ever told me in detail. So how did you even start as a DJ and then composer, producer, artist and so much more?
1: Well, uh, it was back in the 1980s. Uh, I was young and I like to go out and I like to dance a lot and I was already buying records back then and exchanging tapes with friends and uh, listening to music a lot and enjoying music a lot. And uh, in one of my favorite bars in Vienna um, called Trabant, I saw like the usual suspects of Viennese nightlife, obviously just playing their favorite records. And I thought, well, I would love to do that as well because i already had like a record collection and i just asked the owners and they said yes let's give it a try and yeah so (laughs) this is how how i started uh, out as a dj and it was under uh (laughs) Yeah, very, very low key circumstances. Um, They didn't even have like proper turn. Well, the turntables were proper, but they were not proper DJ turntables. They were belt driven and (laughs) there was no DJ mixer. (laughs) And it was really just playing like one track after the other with uh, small intervals in between (laughs) for changing the record. Anyhow, I had a lot of fun and then I got booked for like a proper club for dancing people. And back in in the days I was playing what we used to call black music. Um, So it was like hip hop and funk and jazz and it was a colorful mixture of, of records and leading me to somehow a dead end because at some point I was DJing for, for a year or so, I I got a little bit fed up with playing only old records from the 70s and um, or mostly old records from the 70s and the hip-hop records that came out in 1990 I did not like them as much as the the older, old-school stuff before. So um, at some point, uh, a DJ who worked in a record store called Black Market, like the the London record store, actually, he showed me a record by DJ Rush, on Sabre Records. And I was like... Wow what is that <laughs> never heard something like this before and to me it felt like the essence of what I liked in in dance music before or in music I I loved to dance to before and that was like funk and bass and drums <laughs> and uh, yeah shortly after I, I I also came across through the same... Person DJ Gable was his his artist name, an early underground resistance record, and then it was like completely clear because I was already a fan of Public Enemy, for example, and, and there was for me there was a strong relation between between that kind of hip hop and early underground resistance records, so I got. I oriented myself towards the German techno scene because I saw a lot more possibilities there. And also I saw the better parties and I saw the better DJs there. And uh, as soon as I made my first step as a customer into the Hardwax uh, record store in Berlin, uh, it it was totally clear, okay, this is where I want to be and I want to work at Hardwax and uh, this is my destination, so to say. (laughs) I totally Knew 100% w- where I wanted to be, and it took a couple of years. But finally, in 1993, I got the call from Mark Anestos, the boss of Hardwakes, if I could do like a holiday replacement work in the in the back room, um, packing mail order packages. And I was in Vienna when I received the call, and. Uh, Pretty much the next day. <laughs> Here I am. That's uh, why and how I moved to to Berlin in in ninety three, where I stayed for three years. And in these uh, three years, like it, they like this work at Hardwax record store um, and and being in Berlin around that time in the in the first half of the nineteen nineties very much coined me as an as an artist so these were really important years to me
0: yeah your most formative years and a very um fertile time for the genre as well wasn't it so you were working at the shop and then playing in clubs at the same time and obviously becoming embedded into the ecosystem if you like
1: yeah a, a funny a funny uh, biographical side note is when i left for uh, Vienna for Berlin. I had completely run out of money, and um, I had to cover a credit card bill. And had to take, uh, I had to go to to my bank and tell them, well, I don't have a, a job, um, and I don't have any money left, but I need credit to pay the credit card bill. And they asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, well, I will become a DJ, you know, a successful DJ. So, it time will come soon that I can pay you back from my income as a DJ. And somehow, I must have been convincing because they
0: gave me the credit on, on that word, you know. Brilliant, brilliant. And it happened. It happened. Yes, it happened. And then... T- did you start to produce your own techno as well at that time?
1: Yeah, it um, it started as soon as I got involved in the in the German techno scene. Like, people were really eager to release music by me. I think they thought it was quite. A, um, I had some sort of <laughs> unique selling proposition, uh, being this young woman with bald head <laughs> playing hard techno you know they thought that was quite attractive as a marketing thing uh, so i was very soon asked whether i could make some music or do some music so people were were very like supportive and Inviting, um, and I started out making music in other people's studios. So I went to. I remember one of the first studio sessions was with Richard Bartz for Disco B Records. Uh, same people who were the first ones who invited me to to play as a techno DJ in Munich. In particular, Peter Wache, aka Upstart, the owner of Disco B, and one of the main persons in charge for, for the parties and the clubs where I played in Munich. And I produced one of the very early tracks with Richard Bartz. Uh, it was a split EP with DJ Hell, whom I was uh, very close friends with back in the days. Or uh, other people I collaborated with were Patrick Pulsinger and Adam Tunakan from Vienna, and uh, we recorded a record that was put out. Uh, in, I think in 93, um, Experimental, which was a record label from New York, Damon Wilde's record label, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so, so I also went to the studio quite often with uh, the people who were from Frankfurt, Cologne area, Dr. Walker, uh, and his jungle fever camp, <laughs> I would call it. Um, since I, I traveled to New York really often, and I also played there quite often as a DJ, um, I was working with Khan Oral uh, several times, and we, we invented all these project names. For example the Loisida sisters, <laughs> because Khan lived in the in the Lower East Side, and the Hispanic population there didn't call it Lower East Side, but made it like a short uh, word, Loisida. <laughs> so we were the Loisida sisters, and yeah, it was... Very, very easygoing, we, you know, jam sessions in the studio. I turned some knobs and pressed some uh, buttons uh, to, to program patterns on drum machines. And then, you know, long sessions were recorded on, on digital audio tape and maybe just seven minutes or 10 minutes were taken to be pressed on the, on the record. So it was mainly hardware, drum machines, synths? Exactly, yeah. And a DAT recorder, <laughs> that was it. And most of the times I remember it was uh, Mackie mixer all in the reds <laughs> with heavy distortion and uh, we, I loved that sound.
0: And then I think it was the late '90s when you founded Female Pressure. Could you tell us what that is and why you felt there was a need for it?
1: Um, well, touring as a DJ and and I did travel a lot and I did play like se- several gigs every every weekend. Um, I encountered so many comments about my gender and me being a DJ and people being astonished or uttering these uh, backhanded compliments on the quotation marks like, oh, you're really good for a woman. <laughs> and uh, I noticed that every female colleague of mine has experienced uh, similar reactions and um, that was one side. The other side was that I was regularly asked about other female DJs or women who are um, active as artists in electronic music and club culture. So I got a bit uh, annoyed by the fact that almost every time I played out, I had to name other DJs, uh, my female colleagues, um, And you must imagine it's like 3 a.m. and I'm shortly before a DJ set and trying to concentrate or just like after it and, and a little bit exhausted and happy and want to party or whatever. And it's late and it's 110 dB and it's really not the ideal circumstances for deep conversations uh, and and exact conversations and oftentimes i woke up the next day and I, and you know when you reflect on conversations you had the night before you think of something that did not come into your mind like when it was necessary and i was like how could i forget I don't know, Monica Kruse <laughs> when they asked me about other other women in the business. Anyhow, I felt the need to systematize my answers and I wanted to be able to refer to a knowledge resource uh, that people can access relatively independently from time and space. At the same time, in the second half of the 90s, it became totally obvious that. The internet (laughs) is going to be like a a very important medium. And I thought, oh, it would be ideal to have an online database. Uh, Of course, it took me a while to to realize this initial idea. When FEMA Pressure first went online, it was just a simple HTML list because I did not know any people who could program a database, an online database. But still, that's how it started. And since then, a lot has changed. But nevertheless, since the beginning, for example, I wanted to include visual artists because I think club culture and electronic music is really like very connected to, to people who make graphic design or who who make video art that is being played in in clubs or for music videos etc so from the beginning it was not only dj's actually it was also not only women <laughs> or let's say biological women so there was not as explicit as it is now and not certainly not as reflected as it is now But for me, female pressure was never about the biological sex. It was more about the gender or it was only about the gender. The reason why I did it is because people did not know about other women or hardly knew about other women. But nowadays, it has become a network of almost 2,900 people from 85 countries. (laughs) Most of the people, like three quarters, live in Europe. And the next biggest part is, I think, about 17% of the people live in, in the USA and in Canada. Uh, we are not only DJs, I already mentioned that, and music producers, but now we also include other people who are important for the infrastructure or for, for the whole scene, uh, like booking agents or ju- some journalists or uh, researchers. And oftentimes, members of the network actually have several professions They are DJs, but they are also researchers, for example. Uh, And this is reflected in the database. What else is important? Yeah, how to become a member of Female Pressure is is, uh, quite easy. You just have to send an email to info at (laughs) femalepressure.net. And then I will answer, this is the current process. We're working on an update, but currently this is how it has been for the past over 20 years. I will answer with an email uh, that explains what FEMA pressure is about and what it is not, because some people expect it to be like a booking agency and that this is not something I can deliver. <laughs> it also includes a couple of questions that I need to be able to create the entry in the database i create the entry in the database and i send a member a login info so theoretically the whole database could be up to date but as a matter of fact everyone including myself often forgets about updating uh, the entry so yeah that that is the idea and uh it it grew to much more we we started to do special projects and one of the most important ones are, is for example our fact survey where we've been analyzing uh gender distribution in electronic music festival lineups um, since uh 2012 <laughs> So we can look at data from for uh, already 10 years and analyze trends. And we just, well, this year in March, we published our fifth uh, report and um, also
0: a lot of other projects. uh, But I mean, yeah, the landscape's changed so much, hasn't it? I think there's so much more support for women or gender minorities, non-conforming genders to kind of rise up or to emerge or develop at the same time as um i remember how important it was i think i joined about 2000 2001 and for me it was the mailing list really it was there was something as i was emerging i was a fledgling artist finding my confidence finding my sound just knowing that there's all these other people doing it in their own way there was something it must have been a kind of support for you as well oh it's it's So great to
1: hear these individual stories. (laughs) I love that because I most of the times I don't know how people get to know uh, about female pressure or um, uh, how the effect is that uh, the network has. It's it's rare uh, that I hear it from first-hand experiences Um, and you mentioned the the mailing list and I forgot to mention that because I think it's our most important tool, it's uh, for internal communication and often it's only like um, news about artists that post like "Ah, I have a new record out or uh, new mixes online but uh, on the, it happens also that we discuss things, and mm. <laughs> um, it it's a constant source for of learning for me. Um, yeah. yeah. And I also would love to mention that female pressure over the um, more than two decades has become intersectional in in the approach of feminism that we do. So we have a very strong uh, anti-racist aspect now to to our network, and I think that's really important, um, as well as uh, trans inclusiveness and It's not always easy, of course, uh, and because there are so many people with different backgrounds and in different stages of their development. Seeing that we we include people from 85 countries, um, there is a huge language barrier, of course. Not everyone is confident in talking about. Uh, delicate subjects in English (laughs) because Mm -hmm. not everyone's mother tongue is English Uh, so Mm -hmm. yeah there are challenges but I think we we navigate quite well
0: yeah and I think you realise there's real diversity we've had discussions about topless DJs we've had discussions about loads of different things but it's really interesting to see all the different views as well indeed yeah Am I right in thinking that you've gravitated more towards experimental listening music rather than making music for the dance floor these days? Um,
1: I'd definitely say so, but I would even state that um, as it happened often in, in my career and in my life that I circumstantially uh, had some some turns in my career or turns in my attention or activities and I was invited for example the for the first time to play live I was invited for a festival called Here I Am uh, in Vienna and the curator of the program she put me together with a improvisation, experimental, avant-garde uh, violinist called Mia Zabelka. And that was the first time to play live. And it was not for the dance floor, but it was in a improv, avant-garde kind of context. So only in a, in a past few years, I have the feeling that the two strands of my musical activities, one being like the club DJ and the other one being making weird music, are coming closer together both ways. So in in my DJ sets, I change the techniques. I don't play with vinyl anymore, but I love to play with uh, CDJs and I prepare my my tracks on the, on the flash drive. And I'm really a huge fan of, of these machines. Uh, so I, I'm able now to add really quite experimental or noisy stuff at times in my dance floor DJ sets with these like new uh, possibilities that opened up to me through the modern CDJs. On the other hand, I'm now more capable of making my experimental stuff <laughs> a bit more danceable, <laughs> I could say. I'm still not finished in that process, and I don't know if I ever will. But uh, I am I feel that there is more potential uh, of combining these uh, two things in an original and meaningful way. Which makes me quite happy because before that, you know, uh, there the was always the the risk of disappointing every side, you know, the side to know me as a DJ when I play live. Ah, uh, that's not as she DJs, potentially. I mean, I never heard that explicitly, but I can imagine.
0: So, tell us about what your some of your current projects are. I know that you've you was saying you've gone more modular. You were quite into granular synthesis at one point.
1: Yeah, I'm still very much in into granular synthesis. Um, just lately, I combine it with super cute small modular rig that I uh, assembled as a as a new set of instruments, actually, and. I think it it works quite well, in particular live. Um, I did a couple of live sets recently where I played a new work that was just released on Ventil Records um, called Brittle. And it's a composition from, I think, 2020 already. Uh, It premiered as an online performance <laughs> a while ago and finally now it is released it's um, yeah the, the newest release of mine it's a 30 minutes composition and it has four parts and it's quite experimental sound explorations and I played brittle life uh, in an extended version where i combine it with a few modules uh, and it's surprising how well it works together and how much fun i have playing that live because i go back to to improvise when i play live And that reminds me of the old days when I first used to play live with my old gear uh, where you cannot save, mostly cannot save any presets. (laughs) And you have to either remember or write it down. But now it's a lot more refined. And I think from the reactions I get, um, I think it's also quite original. That's a great thing to get as a feedback that even if... Some people are maybe a bit startled because they cannot put it in easily in a category. Um, it's, it's a great feedback for me to have because that raises my artistic value in my own eyes.
0: <laughs> and is that all linked to Ableton?
1: Yes, actually, I, I, use, uh, I use Ableton Live as a big mixing tool then and I have... Parts of my sounds coming still made with granular synthesis <laughs> from Ableton. And I have some live inputs and outputs uh, connecting it with uh, with the modular. And I also mix a little bit on the modular itself, but just for the internal sounds from the rig. Yeah, just recently added another cable so that I can use one of the modular effects, the emitter Versio from Noise Engineering, uh, as, an, as an external effect. It goes back and forth, and uh, to connect uh, Ableton with the modular and to sync it or to, to make it Play when I want it to play. I also use the CV tool um, pack that there is, so I can send triggers and modulations. Some sometimes uh, to my modular. It's fun. I love it.
0: <laughs> and in terms of multi-channel work, I remember you telling me that you'd won a prize in Austria, which meant you could buy yourself a oh, very nice, I think, Genelec multi-channel setup. So tell me more about how you're working with that medium.
1: Yeah, I've been uh, creating multi-channel pieces for quite some while, um, mostly without hearing what I was imagining because I did not have the speaker setup at home in my studio. And I I won the Kunstpreis Musik Uh, which is like uh, the second highest art award that the Republic of Austria has to give away, <laughs> and that came in the middle of the pandemic in 2020. Uh, uh, yeah, that was of course super uplifting <laughs> to get it, and I bought uh, I bought six small ganalics in addition to my two bigger ganalics and stands so i can i can actually have like a eight channel surround setup at home which is great and i use that to uh spatialize uh ferrum and since then yeah it's quite absurd uh, brittle the new piece that just came out on ventile records original was supposed to be premiered at uh, the University Arts University in Graz, Austria where they have a dome with uh, a extensive multi-channel setup but due to the pandemic that plan got canceled and it was clear it's going to be an online premiere streaming premiere So I did not even compose it for multi-channel. I find it quite difficult to adapt a stereo piece to multi-channel. It often does not really make sense apart from... It can be nice to add some effects, for example, to have like two pitch loop 89 effects and... uh, uh, route one to the front channels and the other one to the back channels and they are similar but not the same. <laughs> so you have some some trippy delay effects, uh, immersive delay effects that can be really nice. Uh, but other than that, I think it's a completely different thing to compose something for multi-channel or for stereo. So since Britta was not composed for multi-channel but for stereo now I don't perform it in in multi-channel and I have not been using my sweet Genelec uh surround setup uh since since Ferrum which was in
0: 2020 So what sound card do you prefer for your multi-channel work I
1: always use the um, Moto MK4 because it has so many outputs and also uh, eight inputs, and that's quite useful for my
0: purposes. Cool. I wonder if we can finish with a bit of information about any projects at the moment that you're excited about, any kind of future directions that you're looking forward to.
1: Yes, yes, definitely. Um, I think I partly already mentioned like how much I'm enjoying uh, to play with my really small modular rig. Tell us what you got. Let me have a look. I have uh, a lot of fun with the ultra random analog by um, SSL if I'm not mistaken. Um, I have the mutable instrument plaids and I love to, to connect. These two, so uh, to have like uh, random changes in the in the pitch and random triggers. uh, In particular with plats, I love the the plucked uh, strings algorithm and the chords algorithm. This is really nice. The chords algorithm that's extremely sweet because it adds a dimension to my quite usually quite dry music, uh, it adds a nice harmonic dimension that I did not have much so far, but in a, in a sophisticated way. <laughs> so it's not the usual arpeggio up and down uh, melodic thing, uh, but it's different. And I love to play with that. Um, then I have my favorite uh, dual filter, the Corgasmotron. I already mentioned the version delay, and I also love to route just the, the noises uh, from the ultra-random analog into the delay and play around with that. Then I have uh, the famous uh, basimilus Iteritus Alter from noise engineering as well, a Döpfer-Wosk filter, Nice uh, double uh, dual uh, CVA that I can also use as a sort of submixer. I have a submix 6, which is very useful for playing live because I can route both the, the dry signal and the signal into the emitter versio, And then I have a Quadrax filter as well. And uh, a couple of multiples and this is this is like my current life setup and i got a very interesting request from a very sympathetic label if i wanted to make a new album and since i lost my my last label editions mego because unfortunately almost a year ago peter reberg suddenly died oh, so the label won't continue? Well they will continue to to uh, sell the back catalogue and they did the releases that were already in the pipeline but they won't do any new releases and this is a huge loss not only for me but for the whole music world I think because it was so unique what, what P- Peter dared to do <laughs> and was able to do because of the thing that he had built up, very, very special. But luckily there are some other uh, sympathetic nice labels around and I, I recently got a request whether I was interested to release an album with them. And I am very interested and I'm very keen to elaborate in, with the modular setup that I have here and use what I have here as some sort of limitation to, to make an album out
0: of it. Fantastic. We have to finish there, unfortunately. All the best with continuing to grow your sound world, balancing it with your international professional DJing, as well as your advocacy work uh, for women in electronic scene.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Carol.
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening and be sure to check out the show notes for further information as well as links and details of other episodes in the Electronic Music series. And just before you go, let me point you to soundonsound.com forward slash podcasts so you can check out what's on our other channels. This has been a Caro C production for Sound on Sound.